evidence and answers. Everywhere you look, you can see the handiwork of God. From the wind, to the rain, to the animals, to the children. All handiwork of a great and awesome God. And we have historical evidence to prove many of the stories we read in Scripture. The question is, do you believe? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zugren. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat will be sharing a message entitled, Stones Cry Out. We hope you enjoy this show. Now, here's our host, Pat Zucran. Then they came to the promised land, and it took them decades, decades to conquer the promised land. Pharaoh Merneptah, in his stele, says they were already established as a nation in the land of Canaan. Here's another fun one. Hopefully, we'll get to see it this time when we go. Jericho. You know the story? They walked around seven times, shouted, and the walls came falling down. Many biblical scholars, and even I, when I became a Christian, had trouble believing that this story was actually true. And many of the scholars were teaching, and I learned this in high school and college, that the dates all didn't match up, okay? that the Exodus happened in 1270 B.C. And when Joshua came to Jericho, it was an abandoned city. All right, so there's none of this conquest. It's just a fairy tale meant to strengthen and encourage the people of Israel. The datings didn't match up. Well, recent archaeology has found some exciting things. Here is Mount Nebo. This is in the land of Jordan. And those of you who go on a trip with us will be here. Mount Nebo. This is where Moses looked upon the promised land before he died. And then you see this road here? This is the king's road, as recorded in the Bible. This is the exact road right there. And this green area here, that's what? The promised land. Okay, so Moses stood right about where that guy is standing as he gazed into the promised land. Now, one of the first cities they had to conquer there is the fortress city of Jericho. And there's the site today. And there's the mound of Jericho. And when you go to that city, what do you describe? It's, one of the, it's probably the oldest city in the world, close to 4,000 years old. Here's the tower there at Jericho. It's over 30 feet tall. So indeed, the Bible describes it as a walled fortress city with very high walls. And that's what we have discovered in Jericho. This is the Garstang dig where they discovered a collapse in several parts of the wall. They said most likely due to some kind of earthquake. And what Dr. Garstang discovered is that the walls fell outwards, not inwards. Okay? Very strange. Now, with walls being that high, how in the world did the Israelites get into the city? Well, here's a recreation of the city of Jericho. There's a 10-foot revetment wall here, and on top of that is another 10-foot wall. This is the poorer part of the city probably where Rahab, the prostitute, lived. And then there's a second 10-foot wall there. How did the Jews manage to get up these high walls and into the city? Well, in several parts of the wall, they found a breach. Large piles of bricks had collapsed, forming a nice ramp on which the Israelites could run up and run right into the city. 
And here's Dr. Brian Wood. He's the leading archaeologist on the dig now. There you can see how high those walls actually are. And there's Dr. Brian Wood pointing to one area where the wall collapsed. They also discovered large amounts, jars filled with grain. Obviously, the attack occurred during harvest season, just as the Bible describes. That's why the Jordan was flooded, and they need a miraculous crossing of the Jordan. Also, these large jars are filled with grain. Remember, the Israelites were wandering in the desert. They didn't have a whole lot of food ready at hand. It would have been strategic and valuable to take these jars. But they didn't. Why? Because the Bible says they were forbidden and they were to burn everything down. Also, remember, when you lay siege to a city, what do you do? You starve them out. The fact that these jars were filled with grain shows you the city was captured very quickly, just as the Bible records. They looked at the pottery. They discovered the pottery that dates to the biblical timeline. But what was more exciting is they found these scarab beetles in graves outside of Jericho. Okay, if you saw the movie The Mummy, right, the scarab beetles, these are found at graves and underneath them are dates of when people are buried. And the dates, the graveyard stops at the 14th century. Why? That's when the city was conquered. And in fact, uh, the archaeology was so compelling. The New York Times, in their headlines in 1990, wrote this, score one for the Bible. New York Times, not a Christian-friendly newspaper, but it wrote this. After years of doubt among archaeologists, a new analysis of excavations have yielded a wide range of evidence supporting the biblical account about the fall of Jericho. It may well be true that in the words of the old spiritual, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. For centuries, people questioned the existence of David and Solomon. They thought that they were simply mythical heroes of nation of Israel, like Paul Bunyan you know, or Uncle Sam is to the United States. Because we had never found any reference to David or Solomon outside of the Bible. Here is the greatest of the kings of Israel, and we have nothing of any historical evidence that they existed except the Bible. Well, not too long ago in 1993, a discovery was made in northern Galilee. Archaeologists discovered a black basalt stele, a plaque, a victory plaque put on government buildings there, and it was a stunning, stunning discovery. Once again, the New York Times in 1993, this made front page all over the world. It says, scholars of biblical history said this was strong corroboration, corroborating evidence for the existence and influence of the house of David in early Jewish history and in traditions of both Judaism and Christianity. And in their excitement, they used words like phenomenal, stunning, sensational to emphasize the importance of the discovery in biblical archaeology. What was discovered? Well, they discovered this black basalt stele with 13 lines in Aramaic that could easily be read. This came up decades after David, and it was placed there by the king of Damascus, Ben-Hadad, an enemy of Israel. And he says what? I killed Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. I killed Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. Here an enemy of Israel acknowledges King David and that the kings of Israel descend from King David. Ahab, Azariah. 
Jehoram are historical figures. Why not King David as well? And in fact, just recently, about little over seven, eight years ago, we've discovered the entire city of David. We were digging in the wrong place. It's south of the city of Jerusalem. Outside of the old city of Jerusalem, we have found the city of David, an entire excavation is being done there, and you'll see it because you're coming with us, right, in September. Sennacherib, 2 Kings 19, tells of the story of his failed invasion of Israel, how he conquered the northern cities of Israel and deported the people, and he surrounded Jerusalem and was going to invade it when at night the angel of the Lord came and 185,000 of his men were killed. Well, many thought that that was simply a mythological event, and we discovered Sennacherib's prism. Sennacherib's prism, once again, these are small guys, all right? They're about that. It's not like that. It's like this. Amazing what they can write. It records the legacy of his rule, and he records invading northern Israel, just as recorded in the Bible. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he surrounds Jerusalem. And he says, Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut him up in Jerusalem. So Hezekiah is a real historical person. This invasion was real, but suddenly he abandons the invasion, never capturing Hezekiah, returns to Nineveh, where he is assassinated by his sons, as the Bible records. Well, why doesn't... Sennacherib record his defeat. Oh, ancient kings don't do that, all right? Even when they lose, they write in a way, it looks like they won, okay? So you're not going to record that great defeat, but it's very strange how he had Hezekiah trapped like a burning cave and never captures the guy. and just suddenly abandons and returns to Nineveh. In fact, we just found the seal of Hezekiah in 2007, hey, there in southern Jerusalem. And we can't go talking about the Old Testament without talking about the greatest manuscript discovery in the history of the world, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 1947, a shepherd boy named Simon the Wolf went looking for his goat. He thought it fell in one of these holes, and he threw a rock in there, and he heard something crack. And he looked in there, and he found these jars, hoping it was treasure. He opened it up, and he found what he thought were these useless scrolls. And so he took some home and used it to burn a pot of stew, okay, and gave some to his kids who played with it and it shattered into the wind. But eventually it got into the hands of an antiques dealer who saw there was something very valuable here. And they went to the Dead Sea caves, and they made the greatest manuscript discovery in the history of the world. Hundreds, literally hundreds of manuscripts dating back as early as the 4th century B.C. were discovered, well-preserved in these jars. And when they read them, they discovered fragments from every book of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, were discovered, along with theological commentaries and rules of the society. In fact, the scroll of Isaiah, the long scroll there, is on display that you are going to see in the Israeli Dead Sea Museum, when you come with us, okay, you can see the entire scroll of Isaiah. Now, there's a lot of significance of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Our Old Testament 
is based on the Masoretic text. The oldest Masoretic text we have is dated 900 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls, they dated them. For example, the scroll of Isaiah is written about 100 BC. And they matched that up with our Old Testament. And if there was a lot of differences and changes, you can argue our Old Testament has not been well-preserved. But when they matched them up side by side, they were 99% identical. The 1% difference had to do with grammar and notes that scribes would put in. Otherwise, you had an almost identical scroll to our present-day Old Testament text, showing our Old Testament has been very accurately preserved. Not only that, even if you don't believe Isaiah wrote Isaiah or Daniel wrote Daniel, at least a hundred years before Christ set foot upon the earth, these prophecies of Christ were already written and they were down. And Christ fulfilled each one in a phenomenal way. And finally, when you read their theological works, you realize that the Jews were looking for a personal Messiah. Okay, today, many Jews say, no, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that's the nation of Israel. That's us. We've suffered and paid for the sins. No, you look in first century Israel, they were looking for a person, a Messiah to come. So the Dead Sea Scrolls did a lot to confirm the faith of Christians all over the world. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, it's a treasure trove as well. Here in this beautiful stadium here, the amphitheater here with beautiful acoustics. Junko sang in there, and it was just like singing with speakers. Just phenomenal theater there. And then this uh, hippodrome here where they do the chariot racing. Okay, they're in northern Israel in Caesarea Maritima. Well, who built this place? Well, they discovered in 1961 they discovered a plaque of the guy who built it. And guess who? It was built in the first century by Pontius Pilate. Yeah, the governor who condemned Jesus to death. And there's a plaque there with words in Latin that can clearly be read. You will see that plaque hanging there at Caesarea Maritima when you go with us. And it says, To Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. Here in Galilee, there was an octagonal church built in the 5th century. But when archaeologists started digging in 1968, they discovered there was another church underneath it. And this church was also octagonal in shape. It was actually a house that was expanded into a church. And there was graffiti there showing this had become a place of worship. And tradition dates it all the way back to the 1st century A.D., that this is the house of Peter, where Peter lived and Jesus did several miracles there and taught there. The tradition is very strong and it goes back to the first century. So most archaeologists are convinced this is literally the house of Peter. In John chapter 5, John describes an unusual pool in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate called the Pool of Bethesda. There, surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here, this is where Jesus healed the lame man. He healed the lame man. He said, hey, take up your bed, walk, and go home. All right? And the man immediately got up, took up his uh, stretcher, and ended up walking home, causing a lot of controversy. Well, until 
Recent times, there's no evidence outside of John that this pool ex with this very unusual description even existed. And this caused the Bible scholars to doubt the reliability of John's gospel. Well, in 1930, guess what we discovered? The pool of Bethesda. There it is. And guess what? There are four colonnades around its edges and one in the middle. Five colonnades, just as John described. And there's a staircase over there and over there in which you can actually go down the shaft and see the pool of Bethesda. Then we have, in John chapter 9, the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed a blind man. And the exact location of this pool remained a mystery until June of 2004, as Israelis were doing repair on a large water pipe south of the Jerusalem Temple Mount. They discovered some steps and a pool. And after studying it, without a doubt, they had discovered the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed a blind man in John chapter 9. And you sit there, and we had a devotion there. Well, when you walk around Israel, you're going to see several graves. And at these graves, you're going to see ossuaries. These are boxes in which they put the bones of the dead of people who had died. As described in the Gospels, they would lay the body out on a flat uh, stone bed, and then the skin and the organs would deteriorate. And months later, they would go and collect the bones and put it in a box called an ossuary. Well, in a royal chamber, there in Jerusalem, they found a fancy ossuary there, and the name was still on it. It belonged to Caiaphas, the high priest who condemned Jesus to death. Then they discovered another ossuary in 2003 in, there in Jerusalem, and there the name was on it. Guess who it was? James, the brother of Jesus. And that ignited a firestorm of controversy. But Dr. Herschel Shanks of the Biblical Archaeological Society and his team put the ossuary through a battery of scientific tests. And today they are convinced this is indeed the ossuary of Jesus' half-brother, James. All this physical evidence connecting someone to Jesus Christ. Herod. The man who built the Jerusalem temple died in 4 BC, and he was buried in the Herodium. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, told of the king's elaborate funeral, how hundreds of soldiers and dignitaries came, and they marched outside south of Jerusalem and buried him in a fortress he had made. Now, the Herodium is an artificial mountain that he made. It's one of his great architectural masterpieces there in the Judean desert. It rises about 2,500 feet above sea level. It was a great palace fortress, seven stories of living rooms, storage areas, cisterns, a bathhouse, a courtyard filled with flowering plants. And they discovered it in 1973. Dr. Harold Netzer began excavating and at the bottom, 
floor, they discovered a sarcophagus that had been shattered to pieces. Well, they reconstructed it, and guess what? They found the tomb of Herod the Great. Why was his sarcophagus shattered? Well, the Jews didn't like him. All right, so when they rebelled against the Romans, they went in there and smashed his sarcophagus. Well, those are some of the great archaeological discoveries. We could stay here all afternoon, and I could show you discovery after discovery after discovery, but I don't have to because you are coming to Israel with us, right? And you can see them for yourself, and then you can get up here and you can teach it, all right? There are literally thousands, thousands of archaeological discoveries that confirm people, places, and events of the Bible, all right? There's no other book that has so much historical corroboration as the Bible. Well, how does this apply to us today? Well, there's some significant conclusions here. First of all, archaeology shows us the Bible is a historical book, that Christianity is a uniquely a historical faith. There was a guy named Moses who led the people out of Egypt. There was a guy named Jesus who claimed to be the divine son of God and lived a miraculous, sinless life. He died and miraculously rose from the dead. The Bible gives us an accurate historical record of God's activity upon the earth. And the Bible then can be trusted. And the Bible gives us God's redemption plan for all of mankind, that we are indeed sinners, unable to stand before a perfect and holy God. And because there's nothing we could do to earn right standing with God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was a real historical figure who claimed to be the divine son of God and confirmed his claim to his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection from the dead. In fact, we have confirmed now Jesus indeed prophesied and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. No other person in history comes even close to doing the miraculous feats that Jesus did, demonstrating he was indeed who he said he was, the divine Son of God, paid the price for our sins and died and rose again. And by trusting in him, one can have eternal life and right standing with God. And so in Luke 19, verse 40, as Jesus was entering into the city of Jerusalem, the people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. And the Pharisees were saying, hey, Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they remain silent, the very stones will cry out. And indeed, in a similar way, the stones of history are crying out today, testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ and God's holy word. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony of history that gives us confidence in your word, that we can trust it, we can believe its promises to be true, and that it indeed records an accurate historical record of your activity here upon the earth and how you came and rescued us 
from sin and death and gave to us your divine revelation. May we treasure it. May we apply it to our lives each day. In Jesus' name, amen. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, the number locally in Hawaii is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website at evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>